Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22, and then 1 Timothy chapter 6, 11 to 16. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandment and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong, in heaven, belong heaven and the heaven of the heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You will serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is, sorry, he is praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 16. But, for, but as for you, O man, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, un, yeah, unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. Morning, everybody. Thanks, Beck, for reading that. Now, I do have some kids' question worksheets, which I uh, very carefully prepared by scrolling some questions down on a bit of paper this morning. I've only got three of them, so I'm thinking maybe uh, primary school age kids. Um, Ethan, Luke, Cameron, I don't know. Do you want one? Do you guys want to come up and grab these? There's basically four questions. job there's four questions written on there um, 
which if you listen or even just read your Bible, you'll probably be able to answer. Questions are, what should we flee from? What should we follow or pursue? What do we need to take hold of? And the last one, Paul is urging us to keep this commandment in the sight of which two witnesses? And that's sort of what we're going to cover. Um, This passage today has some important verbs uh, throughout it, which we're we're going to look through. Um, I've got, if you flick to the next slide, I've got the um, passages on the screen, but I realise that my computer, when I'm closer to it, is a bit easier to read than the screen far away. So uh, you might want to follow along in your own Bible um, in Timothy, where we just read. So from the start, but you. Now the word but is a very important word in scripture. I think the last time I spoke, um, I talked about a different word, uh, the importance of the word therefore. And the little phrase that uh, was drilled into me as a child, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is it therefore? What does that mean? It means you don't start a conversation with therefore. You don't start a message with therefore. You continue a conversation. So if you see a sentence or a paragraph or a chapter and it starts with the word therefore, you should look at what has been written before so you can get the context for what is to come. It's a continuation of thought. <laughs> saying in the light of this or because of all this, therefore. Um, there's a mathematical or a logical symbol for therefore. Uh, does anyone know what that looks like? Oh, Three circles, three circles or three dots? In a triangle? Um, Yeah, so you might see that in mathematical proofs if you're doing maths. A lot of times you'll write some stuff down and then therefore at the end, therefore A equals B or whatever it is. I can see a few people drifting off as I start to talk about mathematics, so we'll get back to it. So but is a different word, but it is similar to therefore because instead of Following on from the previous theme, it indicates a change of direction. So you should still look out for but, especially when it's at the start of a sentence or a paragraph or a chapter. And you should still read what comes before to get the context. But this time, you know that what follows is not a continuation of the thought. It's a contrast or a new direction. Does that make sense? Two quick examples. One is the sentence I just said. Look forward to what comes before to get the context, but this time it's a contrast. It's very meta. But another example, the one that often comes to mind when I think about the word but, is from Ephesians chapter 4, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. You can flick there if you want. I don't think I have it on the screen. But essentially, Ephesians chapter 2 starts with the condition of man. You were dead in sins. You were lost, helpless, and hopeless. And then in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive in Christ. So when we start our reading today with the word but, our instinct should be to look back and to see what's come before. Before we do that, though, we'll go a little bit further forward. But you, man of God, this reminds us who this letter is written to. So remember, the letter is written to Timothy and it. It is written so that we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. That's what we've been looking at through this whole series. And this section today is written to the individual. So written firstly to Timothy, um, but also to every individual in the household of God. 
And I think this is one of the themes we can, we can draw out from Timothy as we've gone through it. There's direction that's given to how the church can function as a whole. Um, but it often comes down to an individual level. So as each individual in the church has a role in how they conduct themselves in church. And as each individual submits themselves to God's will, then the church as a whole functions. So there's certainly organization and responsibilities and there's structure. But fundamentally, I think God desires firstly that each individual serves him. Or I guess another way of thinking about it, you can't serve as part of a bigger body if you're not serving God individually. So having a structure or an organization in place doesn't absolve you of your individual responsibility to serve God. I think that's an important realization too that every person needs to come to in terms of their salvation, is that your salvation doesn't depend on what group you might be a part of. So you can't be saved just because of a denomination or a church that you attend or a family that you're born into. It sounds strange, but Jesus didn't come to die for Chapel Street Baptist Church in the sense that he didn't stand in the place of Chapel Street and take the sins of Chapel Street. Because that might mean that you could join Chapel Street and be saved. But that would actually take away from, I think, the truth of the gospel, the saving work of Christ, is he died for you, or he died for me. He stood in my place, and he took my sin. And by God's grace, we are saved through faith, not of ourselves, and not of joining a church or not being born into a Christian family. But it's the gift of God. And God's word often hits, it, hits at us at an individual level, and here it does too. So what is it telling me? It says, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So now we really do have to go back because flee from all this raises the obvious question, what is all this? What are we fleeing from? So last week, Dash took us through verses 3 to 10 of Timothy. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Verses 3 to 10 warn us about false teachers who have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels, about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And it expands on this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Flee from it. Flee from false teaching, from things that are in conflict with sound teaching. Flee from temptation. Flee from the love of money and the evil that it can lead to. Flee from sin. I was thinking about this during the week after last, last week's message. How common the expression you hear, money is the root of all evil. And most people 
probably don't realise they're quoting the Bible, and even fewer people realise they're misquoting the Bible. Because it's been twisted, hasn't it? And that's the way I think the devil operates and has since the beginning, since Genesis. Takes God's word and twists it. And there's a reason we're, not, we're warned not to add or take away from God's word. But if we look at what the Bible says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And money itself is a tool. It's something that we have, something we work for, that we earn in order to spend it. But the money that we have ultimately is a gift from God. And we need to be good stewards with what God provides us. We need to use it to take care of our families, to feed and clothe ourselves and others, to help others. But ultimately, to use our gifts and our abilities to serve God and to share the gospel. And so there's a problem that comes if we start to rely on money instead of relying on God as our ultimate provision. If you rely on money before long, you start to rely on yourself because you earn the money. And you start to love money and the things that it can buy for you. And this leads to all sorts of evil. So it's not money that we are to flee from. That would make it very hard to get a job, I think. Amy, if you were at work, every time someone came to pay for their pizza, you'd run off to the back room. It's the love of money, the temptation that comes with it. And so in this passage, it says, flee from this. It's not just the love of money. Flee from this means flee from everything in verses 3 to 10. Flee from false teaching. Flee from temptation. I found this interesting because our instinct might be to stand and fight or to resist. I was talking to Josh last night about the fight or flight instinct and Josh believes that he doesn't have a flight instinct. When he's startled, he's always ready to fight. I don't know about myself, but I think we often think about flight as maybe a sign of weakness or, or cowardliness. And when I was first looking at this passage, I saw Fight the Good Fight of Faith, and the passage was titled The Final Charge to Timothy. I, I didn't think I'd be talking about fleeing. I didn't think God would bring that out. And our instinct might not be to flee, but to stand and resist. But what does that mean? It, would that mean to listen to false teaching in order to call it out or to know your enemy a bit more? Or to put yourself in a tempting situation and test your resolve? Maybe entertain thoughts or fantasies about how you would spend a lot of money because there's no harm in just thinking about it? That's not what God's word tells us. It doesn't say expose yourself and build up a resistance. It doesn't even say these things are bad, don't do them or refrain from doing them. It's a much stronger word. It says flee, run away, just get out of there. It reminded me of a video I saw. There's a guy who teaches self-defense and he wanted to demonstrate some self-defense techniques. So he went up to people on the street. He had some boxing gloves with them. He asked them if they wanted to try and punch him in the face. He said he wasn't allowed to punch them back. A few people agreed and they had a timer and he set the timer and the guy ran away. He didn't actually run off down the street, but he was ducking and weaving and bobbing and rolling and any sort of maneuver to keep out of their reach. Doesn't matter how stupid or how cowardly it looks, if the goal is to not get hit, 
run away. I had a, um, an insane thought probably when I was preparing this that at this point we could do a physical demonstration with Caleb coming up and trying to hit me. But Caleb does um, Taekwondo, is it Caleb? And I've seen how hard he can kick. So we'll keep it as a theoretical exercise. <laughs> if my only aim was to not get kicked by Caleb, if that was my primary goal, then my best strategy is to run away. You can't always do that in practice. But the concept, we often try and stand, we often try and resist. But for these things, God says to flee. And we think back to Genesis, we think back to Eve and the serpent after a conversation, Eve saw the fruit, she desired the fruit, and she ate it. I'm not usually big on hypothetical situations, but what if Eve ran away? The serpent talks to her, she fled. She and Adam sought after God, lived contentedly, seeking after God, eating all the amazing fruit he had provided. Because if you don't flee from the temptation... You see the pattern of sin right from the start. Eve saw the fruit, she desired the fruit, and then she ate. You see something, and then it consumes your thoughts, and it fills your desire, and it takes over, and then you act upon it. So it's a serious thing. Flee from temptation, from the love of money. Flee from materialistic things and thinking. Because you possess your possessions or they possess you, as the saying goes. But the next verb that we're going to look at is equally as important. Flee and pursue are a pair. They go hand in hand. And Dash touched on this last week. It's not one or the other. It's got to be both. Flee from all this and follow or pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. So it's not enough to to just not sin or to avoid doing bad things. And I think that's a common attitude. I remember talking to my boss once. She came from a Catholic background. She had no real relationship with God, but she thought she was all right because she'd read some parts of the Bible, specifically the uh, Ten Commandments. She'd read through this list of things that you weren't to do. She's like, I haven't done all the bad things. I haven't killed anyone. And she thought she was right with God. Well, firstly, flee is a much stronger word than just avoiding or refraining. It's actively removing yourself. And equally, pursuing righteousness is a stronger word than just avoiding doing bad things. Our society sometimes thinks you're good if you just don't do bad things. But God's word here is encouraging us to flee from sin and to pursue these things, to pursue righteousness. What does that look like? It talks to our integrity with how we deal with others. It talks to justice and pursuing righteousness. Chase after that. Make that the thing that you desire. Pursue faith. Pursue godlikeness, godliness. I think pursue faith talks to us of faithfulness and dependability, but also pursue actively work on growing in your faith. Full-heartedly pursue love. That affection for both God and for each other. Pursue endurance or patience. patience, Steadfastness. 
endurance under trial. Follow after gentleness. It's a kind and humble disposition. These are things the world often doesn't value. But God says that we are to flee from worldly values and instead pursue these things. Last week, Dash posed a number of questions that were designed to uh, get us thinking about what our number one desire is, what we are living for. It was pretty uncomfortable in that context, that set of questions. It reminded me at a recent men's breakfast, a similar question was posed to us. Where does your mind turn when you're not thinking about anything? Where does your mind drift to? It's a challenge. But I think the more that we flee from temptation and sin, the more that we actively pursue godliness and righteousness, the more God is moulding us into the likeness of his son and changing our attitudes and changing what we think on. The third verb, fight. And often you hear these together, three Fs. Flee, follow, fight. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Conjure up images in your mind of putting on an armor and charging into battle? It did for me. What does it mean to fight the good fight of faith? That's what I thought I'd be speaking about mostly this morning, but I think God had different plans. And in reality, this verse is best explained by the verses before and after, because how do you fight the good fight of faith? By fleeing from some things sin and temptation, and by following others, godliness, righteousness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. You definitely don't fight sin by engaging in it. That would be like letting the enemy in the gates. Uh, McDonald's commentary suggests the word fight here is better thought of in an athletic context as opposed to a battlefield conflict. So in that sense, to fight the good fight of faith, this is more along the same lines as running with endurance the race that is set before us. And the following verses give us more. Verse 13, take hold. It's another verb to underline. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. How do you take hold of eternal life? Last week we talked about the importance of having an eternal focus, not a temporal focus. So not just living for the here and now, but having that eternal mindset, that big picture framework. The gift of God is eternal life, forever with him. Take hold of that. And we know when when we are saved, we receive the gift of eternal life. Is that what this is talking about when it says take hold of eternal life? This verse is not a call to sinners to be saved. This is a call to Christians, to the man of God, to the church, to take hold of their eternal life. So the eternal life that we have received as a gift from God is not just a vague, abstract notion, but it's something that we can take hold of. So that speaks of it being tangible, being definite, and being useful. The eternal life we are called to is the motivation for our fight spurs us it spurs us on to flee from temptation it spurs us on to pursue righteousness and godliness 
I think it's worth noting here too that when someone became a Christian, they make a confession in front of many witnesses. This might refer to profession at the time of their salvation, at the time of their baptism. It might refer to subsequent testimonies or even their whole life as a testimony for Jesus as they live their life for him. But it's important to note it wasn't just implied that someone was a Christian because they were part of a church. People had heard them declare it. A pattern we always see in the New Testament, someone repents and comes to salvation. They profess their faith and they are baptised. And when Josh, when Moses was baptised last year, we were there as witnesses. And we saw it happen. And we heard them make their professions of faith. We have some more baptisms coming up soon. When hopefully, no doubt, it will be the same. At our last pancake breakfast, Sam shared with us from his life and his testimony. And there's the other breakfast coming up soon where I'll do the same. And this is important. It encourages us. It helps us to keep each other accountable. It means that we can say, remember the eternal life you were called to. Hold on to that. Remember, take hold of that faith that you profess in front of many witnesses. And speaking of witnesses, Paul is about to charge Timothy. Now, the word charge doesn't mean to charge into battle like I mistakenly thought when I first saw the heading. It's an urge or a command. I charge you. And he's about to charge him in front of two witnesses. In the sight of God, the giver of life to everything, and Christ Jesus, our greatest example in everything. So why is God described as the giver of life here? Perhaps it's to do with the charge that Paul is giving Timothy and us. Because it's a dangerous thing to be a Christian in the early church. In some parts of the world, it's a dangerous thing to be a Christian now. And I believe as time goes on, it'll become more uncomfortable to be openly a follower of God in this country. And perhaps even dangerous. And Paul would have been acutely aware from his own experience that fleeing from sin and pursuing godliness and openly professing to follow Jesus could lead to death. And so with that in mind, it's important and encouraging to remember that we serve a living God, a God who is the giver of life, a God who raises from the dead. No matter what they can do, no matter the suffering or even to the point of death that you can go through for your faith, we serve a God who raises from the dead. And the second witness, Christ Jesus, our greatest example in everything. Before Pilate, he witnessed the good confession. Now, I turned and I read through the Gospel of John and Jesus before Pilate, and a verse stuck out. John 18, verse 37. You can turn there. I might have a slide on it too, Caleb. But John chapter 18, verse 37 Jesus before Pilate says this, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is our example to do that, to bear witness to the truth. And so as before, this charge or this urge is not just to Timothy, but it's to us to keep this command without spot or blame until Jesus comes. 
And it's serious. We're being urged to fight the good faith, to flee from sin, to follow and pursue righteousness and godliness, and to take hold of our eternal life in a very real way. It's not just me saying this to you. It's in the sight of God, the giver of life, and in the sight of Christ Jesus, our Savior and our example. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some people may try to tell you they figured out when Jesus will come again. They've decoded some sort of secret formula in the Old Testament or using calendars or star charts. But for me, I look at verse 15. Jesus will return and God will bring it about in his own, in his own time. But this should be our hope that Jesus is coming again. This is something that we should be looking forward to and longing for. This is something that unites us, not only what Jesus has done for us, but what he is going to do. He is coming again. I think this is the core of the the difference between the truth of God's word and the vain lies of religion and mankind's attempt to satisfy themselves. We serve a living God and our Savior right now is seated at God's right hand and interceding for us. And he says, I will come again to receive unto myself. And Job knew this. Job's one of the oldest books in the Bible. And Job, before Jesus, long before Jesus had even come the first time, was looking forward to him coming at the end. Job chapter 19, in the midst of incredible suffering, Job cries out and says these words. He says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. He wants these words recorded in a way that they will not perish. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with mine own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Are we looking forward to that day when we will sin no more? Or do we find ourselves enjoying the struggle with sin that we have? We shouldn't. Does our heart yearn for that day when you will see God face to face with your own eyes? Do we live with that bigger picture in mind? That everything we do here, everything that we go through now, is only until Jesus comes. Life is short and it will pass before you know it. But in the time that you're granted on this planet, will you flee? Will you follow? And will you fight the good fight of faith? Will you take hold of that eternal life to which you are called? Earnestly looking forward to the day when Christ appears. There's a famous poem by man called C.T. Studd. He was a cricketer initially. He played for England. Actually played against Australia when the Ashes, the very first Ashes series. But then more importantly he became a missionary. He went around and he shared the gospel and he wrote down this famous poem which has inspired so many people including my granddad who used to recite this often. I was initially going to read just the key two lines, but I've got the whole thing printed here, and I think I will read this whole poem. 
Two little lines I heard one day, travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, from my mind would not depart. Only one life, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet, and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave, and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervour burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say thy will be done, and when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Let's close our eyes and I'll close with these awesome words from the end of our passage about the living God whom we serve. And then I'll pray. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Father God, we bow before you now. We praise and we worship you as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the rightful King and Lord of our lives. We thank you that you have called us into eternal life with you. That while we were dead in our sins, while we were enemies to you, completely helpless, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. We thank you that you have made us alive in Christ. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Lord, we acknowledge that so often we fail to live for you in the light of what you've done for us. We confess our sin and our failing, that we let our pride and our selfish nature control us instead of 
submitting to you and being controlled by your spirit. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy. And your word says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to flee from sin. Help us to follow righteousness and to fight the good fight of faith. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we look forward to the day when Christ appears in your time, when we shall see you face to face with our own eyes and be with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.